This is one of my best moments as a minister. It's when you stand up and you can take in the whole congregation at once. Um, there are times when I just actually just want to have a moment just to myself, but I know I can't do that each week. It just would be a bit strange, you watching me watch you. Um, but it is. It's a glorious sight. I, it, it wasn't always a glorious sight. In my late teens, um, I started to, I guess, you grow up and you start to go, hey, the church is full of people. There's conflict. There's difficulties. Um, there's a variety of things going on. I, I think I was in, uh, I must have been 19, and I was invited to be on parish council. I was like the token young person on parish council. And, and I started to see the inner workings of the church. And, hey, it was messy. It was messy. And so for a time, I started to feel a bit funny about just the way that I looked at it wasn't quite right. But God worked on me. And God started to teach me that where he is in the midst of his people is his glory. That God's people are glorious. All of creation reflects God's glory. Humanity particularly reflects God's glory. The church, even more, even more so the church reflects the glory of God as Jesus is in its midst by the power of the Holy Spirit. Which brings me to this point, that if it's true that if you could see yourself as I see you now, as glorious, if you could see yourself as God sees you, as glorious, then it, you might have great wonder at yours and my stupidity at times. It, I, I don't know if you understand what I mean by that, but if, if you could see yourself, is there something I can do to... No? It's all right. Does it help if I move away? Okay. It, it's, it's this idea of being able to... You know when you see the potential of yourself or of others and then you see sometimes how you behave, you go, what is wrong with me? Well, it's like that with God as he looks at us sees the glory that can be, that is. And then we see actions, behaviours that are contrary to that glory. It seems stupid. And that's a strong word. I feel almost strange saying it. In our house, we're not allowed to use that word. So I, I, it's almost difficult for me to say it, but I want you to feel the force of it for a moment because... I don't know if this is true for you. There are some things in my life that haven't changed until I've seen how stupid I am. Does that make sense? There are some things in my life that haven't changed until I see how stupid I am or how stupid I'm being. And when I realise how stupid it is, it's like, why would I keep doing that? Jeremiah has the unenviable task of being God's prophet in a time of judgment. Andrew introduced us to Jeremiah last week. Um, in this book, you hear Jeremiah uh, speak in times when it sounds like it's warning, judgment is coming. Sometimes it just sounds like a pronouncement, judgment has come. But even 
in this book of judgment, there are words of hope and comfort in light of the judgment that has come. Andrew helpfully enabled us to understand the role of a prophet. Uh, It wasn't simply that a prophet tells the future, but rather a prophet brings revelation, understanding, to interpret the circumstances and context of these present moments. And usually, especially in light of God's word, God has revealed himself, and in light of his word, how do we understand what's going on? How do we make sense of our circumstances or the context we find ourselves in? And I think Jeremiah especially has Deuteronomy and Hosea in mind. In Deuteronomy, before God's people enter the promised land, Moses reminds them of all the commands that God has given them and he places before them blessings and curses. He says, if you head this way, if you're disobedient, if you forsake God, there is curses and death awaiting. But if you follow God, if you love God, if you obey him, there's blessings and there's life. And he exhorts them to choose life. Jeremiah knows God's word. He has this in mind. And the book of Hosea has that strong imagery of God as husband and God's people as wife. And that God is faithful and Israel is the unfaithful spouse. And he has that in mind too as he speaks and declares and brings these judgments to God's people. But the reason I mentioned that word stupid before is that as we listen to Jeremiah, I want you to listen carefully to the foolishness he brings. He, he, he raises the foolishness of God's people, the stupidity of what they're doing to the surface. And as Jeremiah does that for God's people then, I believe he does it for us today. And one of the things that can happen when we sense that, wow, I might be acting in ways that are stupid, a self-defense mechanism will kick in. And you might not want to imagine yourself to be acting in such ways. And you might be grateful that such a sermon is being preached and you're so glad that so-and-so is here to listen to this and your spouse should listen to this. And, and you can imagine all these other people for whom this is a really good word. But I, I want you that if you get a sense that God may be raising something for you Let God finish his work because sometimes some things never change until we see how stupid it is. So let Jeremiah have his way. Let him him do what he's doing to God's people. How is it that Jeremiah exposes our stupidity? Well, it's almost like a courtroom scene. Charges are being brought against God's people. And uh, what are these charges? Well, the first thing I see when I look at the text is the word worthless. It, it appears it appears four times. Three times you'll hear worthless idols, worthless idols, worthless idols. It's worth noting where that fourth worthless goes. So in verse 5, this is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Worthless idols now equals worthless people. 
Worthless idols, worthless idols, worthless idols. And in verse 5, it's worthless idols now equals God's people have become worthless. Why and how is this so? How do we equate these two things? Before I go there, there's also this idea that this is an unheard of thing. How could this possibly be? In verse uh, 10 and 11, cross over to the coasts of Cyprus, that is, go to the west and look. Send to Kedar, that's go to the east and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods, yet they are not gods at all? In this time, in this context, this is an unheard of thing. This might not be so strange for us. We're in a very globalised world where worldviews clash all the time. We might perfectly understand that people might change their views on things. But in this time, such an idea that a nation would change its gods who are not really gods. And this people have seen and heard the stories of God, seen God at work. And so there's this idea of how incredulous this is. How could this happen? But coming back to that idea of how is it that worthless idols have now made a people worthless? Henry Scougal um, is a Scottish minister, um, 17th century, I think. And he said, The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. So how do I know whether I'm looking at an excellent or worthy soul? Well, I look at what's the object of that soul's love. So, for instance, if I am a person who just looks out for my own pleasure, my own satisfaction, um, I guess uh, the object of my love is myself. I'm the object of my love. And that now reflects the excellency or worth of my soul. But then you meet another soul that has love for family, has love for others, and that lets you see that the excellency and worth of that soul seems to be greater. So the object of the love, the greater that the object of the love is, the more worthy it is, the more worthy the soul This, of course, all of this is about worship. Worship, the word worship comes from worth, where we attribute or acknowledge worth. Whatever we think is worthy, wherever we place our attention, our focus, this is where our worship is. This is what we consider to be worthy of our time, of our energy, of our attention. Whatever we give our time, energy, attention to, this is where our worship is. And how do I know something is worthless? Well, in comparison to something that is worthy. So in Jeremiah 2.11 it says, But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. A glorious God for worthless idols. How do I know the idols are worthless? Because it's in comparison to a glorious God. A God who is real, a God who has acted, a God who has moved among his people. 
this passage is bringing to the fore the sin of idolatry. We'll see later in the book that for the prophets, particularly in the Old Testament, the sin of idolatry and the sin of injustice usually went hand in hand. But I would say that the sin of idolatry naturally leads to the sin of injustice. Um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he saw this connection. He said that you're never breaking any of the other laws or commands unless you're first breaking the first one, which is you shall worship no other gods but me. You are never breaking, um, that whenever you're breaking any of the other laws, you are always breaking the first commandment. How is this? Well, if a person were to lie, why are they lying? There is something that's important to them, something, whether it's their image, whether it's the power that they have, that if the truth comes out, maybe they lose power, or if the truth comes out, maybe they lose approval. There's something that they value more than God, more than God's approval, more than satisfaction in God. There is something that they have put in place of God. Whatever sin, whatever command we're breaking, we're always breaking the first one when we break any others. And of course, um, it's good that in the times that we live, we don't have to worry about usually worshipping statues and things. And so idolatry isn't an issue for God's church anymore. You know, of course, that's me being sarcastic. Idolatry is not about statues and idols. I, I heard a story of somebody coming back from a country and saying how confronted they were of you know, temples and statues with animal heads and, and how confronting how some of that stuff is. And then I heard a missionary say in response that he found it quite confronting coming back from a country like that. And in the West, he found that every home had an idol that people would gather around and worship. The TV. That's right. He was talking about the TV. Sometimes people did it by themselves. Sometimes they did it as a family. But people would gather around and spend great time and energy and devotion around the TV. Idolatry is more than just statues and idols. Let me just quickly go through some ideas to just see if anything comes to the surface for you. Um, well, again, let me just define idolatry. So it's, it's anything that takes God's place. Anything that you seek, anything that you trust, anything that you fear, love or desire more than God himself is an idol. Because it's taken the place of God. Timothy Keller suggests the following idols. He talks about power, approval, comfort or control. And I'm going to show you a table in a moment. Now just listen and see if any of them resonate. So he says that if you seek power or success or winning or influence, your greatest nightmare is humiliation. The people around you often feel used and your problem emotion is anger. If you seek approval or affirmation, love, relationships, you seek these things because you need approval, well, your greatest nightmare is rejection. People around you may feel smothered and your problem emotion is cowardice. If you seek comfort, privacy or lack of stress or freedom, then your greatest nightmare is stress and demands. 
People around you may feel neglected. Your problem emotion is boredom. If you seek control, self-discipline, certainty, standards, your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. People around you may feel condemned and your problem emotion is worry. I don't know where you fit in any of those or whether any of those resonate with you. My one's approval. I need you to like me. It's really important that you like me. It's very important. But when that happens, more than I am concerned about whether I have God's approval. And if I have God's approval, then I need not find myself seeking tirelessly and needlessly the approval of everyone else. What other idols are there? I mean, what are the idols of our times or our society? I mean, individualism places center, places me at the center of the universe. Consumerism, stuff will make me happy. Possessions, money. Everything becomes a commodity, something to be used. We come to church to see whether church satisfies us. Everything, everything becomes a commodity. What about idolatry in Christian worship? Couldn't possibly happen in Christian worship. We're here to worship God. So how could this, how could anything we do here lead to idolatry? I've seen churches where the way you preach or the way you treat the Bible becomes so core. And don't get me wrong, I love God's word. I think it's appropriate to handle it well, to study it and to teach it well. But there can come a point where the Bible is put on such a pedestal and the way that you treat it can almost create factions. Um, there was a contentious uh, American minister who came out some years ago and was speaking to some Sydney Anglicans and he said something quite controversial to, to them anyway. He said, you are afraid of the Holy Spirit. Your Trinity is Father, Son and Holy Bible. <laughs> Your Trinity is Father, Son and Holy Bible. He could see that, you know, everyone was about getting the doctrine right and, and in such a way that, you know, you've got one faction here and another faction there. And that's not to have a go at Sydney Anglicans, by the way. I think that happens across the board in a whole host of evangelical churches. I love God's word, but it's a means by which I know God himself. What about the idol of music? Wow, that's a contentious one in churches, music. Um, You may know the song The Heart of Worship by Matt Redman. Do you know the context of the song? Some of you may know the context of the song, where it it came out of. So Soul Survivor, Watford. Um, uh, The church was growing in numbers, like uh, a lot of teenagers. And and the music, uh, if, if you don't know, a lot of music has come out of Soul Survivor, and they've produced great musicians like Matt Redmond and others. Um, and the minister, Mike Pivolacci, just was noticing that he felt that people were losing their way and focus in worship. And so he said, we're going to worship without music. It was a, a very risky thing. You've got all these teenagers who are enjoying the music, some of them there because of the music. He said, we're going to worship for a time without music. No musicians, no sound systems. And at first it was just awkward. People didn't know what to do. Felt really awkward. What do we do? There's no music. And people started singing a cappella. People started praying. 
And, and through that experience, they were just being stripped back to see what is worship about. If you know the lyrics, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that'll bless your heart, I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you've required. You search much deeper within, through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. We sing the song, but we haven't lived the experience. What are the things that stop us from seeing what the heart of worship truly is? And what's at stake when God does start to reveal these idols? What's at stake when we don't repent of or renounce these idols? Well, firstly, God's glory is at, at stake. In Jeremiah 13, 11, Jeremiah says, For as a belt is bound round the waist, so I bound all the people of Israel and all the people of Judah to me, declares the Lord, to be my people for my renown and praise and honour but they have not listened. We were, we're here for God's renown, for his glory. When idolatry is at work, God's glory is at stake. What else is at stake? Our witness is at stake. Deuteronomy, um, this is Moses speaking to the people. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Carefully observe them, observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? As the people entered the land, people, the other nations were supposed to see them. They were supposed to stand out as distinct. They were supposed to be looked upon and go, wow, they're so wise and discerning. Their laws are so just. They were supposed to be noticed. It was supposed to be their witness. Because remember God's promise to Abraham that through Abraham, blessing would come to all the world. God had brought his people into the land and their life, their following, their faithfulness would have been a witness to all the other nations. Instead, they followed the other nations in the same way that we could be conformed to the pattern of this world. And finally, what else is at stake? Our very life is at stake. God is true life and blessing. This is where Jeremiah really brings it to the fore in this imagery. He says, My people have committed two sins. Firstly, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. See, that would be bad enough, that to forsake God, the spring of living water. But they've gone further they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They've not only forsaken God, they've gone and created other gods and worshipped other gods. And what's a cistern? It's a, uh, 
containment to hold water, a hole dug in the ground, and in that time probably plastered. The problem with plaster is it could crack, and if it cracks, it's useless. Water just seeps through. So look at this imagery. You've got a, an, a continuous spring of water, or you've got a containment which can crack and has holes in it. And water, such an imagery of life. We need it to live, and agriculturally, it's about life. God is our life. It almost seems strange that we would turn away from that which is life, that which is satisfaction and joy, to chase after other things. It seems crazy. Stupid, maybe. I pray that God would convict us of our stupidity and show us his glory. Because that's the remedy, that when we see God's glory, when we see and when we taste and see that God is good, and that's the invitation to taste and see. We don't want to raise our young people to just telling them God is good. We want them to taste and see that God is good. We want them to experience the reality of it so that the things of this world are like rubbish to them compared to the beauty, to the glory, and to the wonder of God. And of course, God has revealed us, revealed to us his glory. Moses said, show me your glory. And, and in response to that, the Lord passes by and he reveals to him, I am the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So how does God reflect his glory? In his grace, in his love, in his mercy. And in the New Testament, it's, it's brought to the fore even more vividly. In 2 Corinthians 4.6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, God creator who said, let there be light, that same God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That when we look at Christ, we see that God is demonstrating his love, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We see in the face of Christ God's love that instead of punishing us, Christ, God himself, takes the punishment. That when we look at Jesus, we know that God understands our pain and our suffering. We see the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. And I know that we all have idols to repent of because none of us love the Lord our God with all our heart with all our soul, with all our mind and with all our strength. I don't want you to be too weighed down by that reality. Because you see, our lives, till Christ returns, is one of repenting of and renouncing our idols and turning in faith to Jesus alone, our living water, our satisfaction, our hope, our love, our joy, our life. It is a continual, we repent and we turn to Christ. And we do so in confidence. We do so knowing God receives us, knowing that God wants to transform us. And I may have said it already, I am excited to be here among this community. This is a community that is looking to be a transformed community a community that's looking to continually repent and renounce 
the things that are holding us back and to turn in faith to Jesus and be transformed more and more into his likeness. Our hope of glory is Christ in us. That's what it says in Colossians. The hope of glory is Christ in us. God wants his glory to shine in us as the life of Christ is displayed in us. To help us in this process, I'm going to ask if I can grab some children to help pass out some papers and some texts. We're going to take a couple of moments. I want you to listen. Anytime I preach, I want you to be listening, not to me, actually, to the voice of God. My words will always be imperfect. My messages will be imperfect. But I want you to listen to what the Spirit is saying. What is it that God may be raising before you? What is it that stops your devotion, your your undivided heart for God? What is it that gets in the way? I want you to write it down on that piece of paper. And it's just between you and God. And you scrunch it up. And you hold it with you. And at the end of the service, I want you to head out those doors and put it in the fire. Because God is a consuming fire. And in his presence, he purifies us. What are the things that hold you back? What are the things that divert our focus, our attention off God? I want you to let God speak. I want you to write it down. Then I want you to crunch it up. And after a minute, Adam will come up and lead us.